We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, on his mission to restore the broken relationship between man and God. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books we find inside the Bible. They're called the Gospels. And today we're going to begin in chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke, if you want to begin turning there. As we pick up our study, Jesus has been arrested, he's been tried, he's been beaten, he's been sentenced, he's been scourged, and he's been crucified. And he's hanging there on the cross. Last week we talked about the reasons why all of this happens. If you missed that, I hope you'll take the time to listen or watch online. This week we're going to bear witness to the most shocking event in the history of the universe, the physical death of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And we're going to read one of the most incredible prophetic passages in the Bible, which contains details so staggeringly specific, they could only come from a source that exists outside of time, as you're going to find out. Well, let's dive into our text. So Luke 23, and we're going to begin in verse 34. With your pen in hand, it says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, underline forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Like you, I marvel at the character and the radical love of Jesus displayed here as he prays for the Jews and the Romans who are involved in his murder, who are literally killing him at that moment. But I also see in Jesus' prayer just a little glimpse and reminder of what the Father was going through as all of this unfolded. You see, Jesus at this time, he's still in fellowship with the Father. They're still communicating through prayer and through the Holy Spirit. And I believe this verse tells us that Jesus in that moment could feel the Father's pain and the Father's desire to take action against those who were murdering his son. And that's why Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I can't imagine the, the pain of being a father and watching this be done to your child. I, I just, I can't imagine as a parent. And that's a whole aspect of the cross we often forget about, what God the Father went through in permitting this to be done to his son, Jesus. And in this, we just see a character in Jesus that you don't find in anyone else, in any other world religion, in any other religious figure. Other religions have karma. In other belief systems, the, the victim would be saying, this will all balance out in the end. But, but Jesus is saying, no, forgive them. Don't hold it against them, Father. It's so radically different to how the rest of the world works. Then we read, and they divided his garments and cast lots. John's gospel gives another level of detail about this. I put it on your outline when John records, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part, meaning there were four soldiers, and also the tunic, that's his outer coat. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. And you might think, that's a fascinating detail, Jeff, but why does it matter? 
Well, John tells us that it matters because it happened to fulfill that specific verse that John's quoting there, which happens to be from Psalm 22, which was written more than 900 years earlier, more than 400 years before crucifixion was even invented. Psalm 22 is what's known as a messianic psalm, which means it's prophetically about Jesus. So 900 years before Jesus went to the cross, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write Psalm 22, which lays out incredible prophetic details. And here's the craziest part about Psalm 22. From the perspective of Jesus hanging on the cross. That's the way Psalm 22 is written. What's also incredible is that it includes specific crucifixion details, even though David had never seen a crucifixion in his life. And John points out that in order for this specific prophecy from Psalm 22 to be fulfilled, Jesus' clothing had to be divided, which it was, into four parts for four soldiers. To fulfill the prophecy, they also had to cast lots for his coat rather than dividing it. So you hear that and you go, that's interesting, but just stop and think. What we're talking about here is so ludicrously precise that 900 years before Jesus goes to the cross, the detail that's predicted is that the soldiers will divide his garments among them while he's on the cross and specifically cast lots for one of his clothing items, his coat. That's astounding, that's shocking. And the coat Jesus is wearing is surprising because it was a single woven entity. It had had no seams. It was literally a work of art and it was incredibly valuable. Which again, just as an interesting side note, goes against the popular myth that Jesus lived his life in poverty. He didn't live his life in poverty. He simply chose to go wherever the Holy Spirit and the Father told him to go but there's strong evidence he had a house. They had enough income in their ministry that one of the disciples was assigned to taking care of the money. People gave money to the ministry of Jesus. Judas was the one who was in charge of managing it. There's never any indication in the ministry of Jesus that there's anything he didn't do because he was too poor to do it. And here when they divide his clothes, they find that he's wearing a very unique, valuable piece of clothing, but it wasn't to be flashy. It wasn't to make the point that Jesus was into the prosperity gospel or anything like that. It is because it was the same kind that was worn by the high priest. Now, under God's law, that garment could only be torn when the high priest was dead, but religious leaders added their own exception, saying they could tear it when they were in the presence of blasphemy. When somebody said something blasphemous against God, then they could tear it too. So do you remember when Jesus was standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, at his illegal night trial, and Caiaphas tears his robe when Jesus says he's the son of God? He's claiming that Jesus is being blasphemous? Well, we know that you're only being blasphemous if you're not actually God. And so if you are, you're not. And Jesus really was God, so he wasn't blaspheming. But what that means is that even though he didn't realize it, when Caiaphas tore his robe, the high priest's robe, he was declaring symbolically that the old order of priests was dead because he tore it while he himself was still alive. He was modeling the fact that a new order, a better priestly order was being ushered in, an order in which there's only one high priest, the great high priest, our great high priest, Jesus, 
who the Bible says offered one sacrifice, one time, for every sin, for every person, and now lives forever to make intercession for you and I. And so it's significant that while Caiaphas's garment is torn, Jesus, the new high priest, his garment is not torn. They keep it in one piece. Verse 35, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered at Jesus on the cross, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. And when you read that, that should just rip your heart out because the very reason Jesus doesn't save himself is because he's saving them and you and me. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Matthew and Mark tell us others mock Jesus by shouting, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. We know that's not what Jesus had said. It was a false claim used against him at his illegal trial. Jesus had actually claimed that if they destroyed the temple of his body, he would raise it up again in three days. Matthew and Mark, this is also on your outlines, tell us that the religious leaders jeered and said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they also said, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Which is incredible because in Psalm 22.8, again, written 900 years earlier, it describes people mocking Jesus, the Messiah, while he's on the cross by shouting. This is a direct quote from Psalm 22. They shout, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The exact same thing prophesied by Psalm 22. Now as prisoners were being marched to their execution site, they would have a placard hung around their neck that would list the reason they were being crucified, their crime. And when they were raised on the cross, that placard would be nailed above their head as a warning to everybody else, basically. And that's what's being talked about next in verse 38 where we read, And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now when you put together all four of the gospel accounts, which describe what was written on there a little bit differently, it becomes clear that the whole thing that was written on there was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And John tells us that it was Pilate himself who wrote the sign for Jesus. Which is interesting, because I'll share with you a fascinating speculation. You can do with it what you will. The Old Testament scriptures are packed with acrostics. These are word puzzles, letter patterns, hidden words. If you take the first letter of each chapter or the seventh letter or things like this, many of you are familiar with the concept of Bible codes. They're all, they're all over the Bible, just as sort of the fingerprints of God that this is a supernatural document that couldn't have been put together by men. And so if you were a Jewish scholar, a scribe or a religious leader, you would be hyper aware of acrostics as a result of studying the scriptures for yourself. You'd be very aware of them. And it seems as though Pilate wrote something intentionally on the placard of Jesus in Hebrew using acrostics. Of all the things he could have written on there, the crime, just his name, he chose to specifically write Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
And so it would have looked like this. Jesus, which in Hebrew would be Yeshua, starting with a Y. Next phrase would be the Nazarene, which would be Hanatzerai in Hebrew, starting with an H. Then it would say the king, which is Vemelech, starting with a W in Hebrew. And then the phrase of the Jews, he Yehudim, starting with an H. And the first letter from each of those words lined up against each other would have spelt Y-H-W-H, which is the Hebrew form of Yahweh, the ineffable name of God. And so out of reverence for the Lord, the Jews would remove the two vowels from Yahweh and they'd never write the full name. Even when they said the name of God, they wouldn't actually say Yahweh, they would say the names of the letters, Yodeh Vave, which is Hebrew for Y-H-V-H. But there would have been absolutely no confusion in their minds about what had been written in acrostics on this sign by Pilate. And John goes on to tell us some interesting information about how the religious leaders respond to what's been written and placed above Jesus on the cross. It's on your outlines. It says, then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Hebrew runs from right to left when you read it, and all you need to know is that if they had made that change, that acrostic would no longer have been present. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And Pilate answers them in the original Greek in which John is written in what's known as the perfect tense. That means that what Pilate actually said is best translated as, what I have written will always remain. That's the best translation of what he said. So whether it was an acrostic or whether they just didn't like the title King of the Jews, it's clear that Pilate was doing something to intentionally antagonize them by writing this placard because he knew that Jesus was innocent and he resented them for pressuring him into ordering his death. John also tells us about a a deeply personal exchange that happens here between Jesus and John the Apostle as Jesus hangs on the cross. Indeed, John will be the only disciple found anywhere near Jesus when he's crucified. Here's what John writes. Should be on your outline too. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Clopas, who is the son of one of these Marys, is also called Cleopas. It's the same name. And on the Sunday that Jesus will rise from the dead, that Cleopas, that Clopas, will be one of the two men that Jesus will bump into on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection when we read that story. Just an interesting tidbit for you. Another interesting thing too is that there's four Marys at the foot of the cross, which means something, I don't know what, but there's four Marys there. So apparently this is quite a popular name and a name of which the Lord approves, seemingly. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, gesturing to John, probably with his head. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. Jesus' blood brothers are nowhere to be found. They've left the scene and they've already started heading back north toward Galilee. Based on John 7, it's likely that Jesus' brothers hadn't yet even reached the point of believing in Jesus as Messiah. They didn't believe he was the son of God yet. 
We know from scripture that two of his brothers, Jude and James, only became believers after the resurrection. It's one of the great evidences for the resurrection is this dramatic change that takes place in the disciples, specifically the brothers of Jesus. But John is there, the disciple whom Jesus loved as he is wont to call himself. And Jesus gives John the task of caring for his mother, Mary. Jesus tells Mary, John is now your oldest son, the one tasked with caring for you. And he tells John, Mary is now your mother to care for. But even more profound than that, Jesus is telling Mary, this is pretty emotional, Jesus is telling Mary in that moment that the season of time in which he was her son has come to an end. He's no longer her son. He's now her God, and that he is being replaced in physical form by John. John is now going to be her oldest son, but that season of time has come to a close in the life of Mary, and their relationship isn't going to be mother-son. It's going to be savior, adopted sister now. He's now her God, not just her son. And church history tells us that John would care for Mary until her death. She would live out her days under his care in the city of Ephesus where John would pastor the church there. And there are those who suggest very credibly, I believe, that the epistle of 2 John is actually written by John to Mary while John was away on some travels. Now before we mention the conversation that takes place between Jesus and the thieves on either side of him, I want to point out that Matthew's gospel tells us that, quote, even the robbers who were crucified with him, with Jesus, reviled him with the same thing, with the same kind of insults. So the Bible actually says that both robbers, when people are mocking Jesus, both robbers crucified on either side of Jesus are mocking him, but one of them is going to repent and change his attitude toward Jesus. Back to Luke in verse 39, it says, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. In other words, we're getting what we deserve, we're guilty. But, and then underline, this man has done nothing wrong. Judas, Pilate, Herod, and even the thief next to him all testified that Jesus was innocent. Verse 42. To me, this is one of the most mind-blowing verses in Scripture. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I love this interaction because this criminal has no concept of being born again or becoming a Christian. He doesn't know anything about that stuff. All he knows is that as the minutes turn into hours on the cross, his conscience is being worked over. The Holy Spirit is convicting him and calling out to him and revealing to him that Jesus really is God in the flesh. And he says yes to what the Holy Spirit is doing in him. And as a result of saying yes to God's call to him, he's able to understand somehow that Jesus is God, that he himself has a soul that's going to live on into eternity after his death on a cross, and he recognizes on some level that his only hope in eternity is this Jesus and the kindness of this Jesus. 
And so he takes all that information which he barely understands and the best pitch that he can make in that moment is Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Just remember me. That's, that's all he's got. He's honest enough with himself that he doesn't say, I, I always meant to get around to going to synagogue, Jesus. I'm, re- I'm really a good guy. I just got caught up with the wrong people. All he's got is, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has no time for any rituals. He has no time to be baptized, no time to be confirmed. He has no time to balance out his karma or do any good works. He's bringing nothing to the table. He's got nothing to offer. And this is where the gospel once again reveals what makes it unique and different from every other belief system in the world. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. And that's why I love the answer that Jesus gives this man. This man is throwing up a Hail Mary, the football pass, not the Catholic prayer. Just a hopeful, a hopeful last. Mary could have been right there and she would have been like, there's nothing I can do for you. I'm like, I'm right here. I can't help you. And uh, this is just a hopeful last gasp attempt at something, anything. And this is how Jesus responds, verse 43. This had to be the most unexpected response of all time, verse 43, and Jesus said to him, assuredly, in other words, you can take this to the bank, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Lord, anything you could do to help me out in eternity would be appreciated. And Jesus says, I'm gonna do more than help you out. I'm telling you the truth. This very day you will be in heaven with me. Paradise with Jesus, not, not watching from afar. And the part that hits me is not just the paradise part, but it's that Jesus says, you'll be in relationship with me. You'll be in paradise with, with me. Not watching from afar, but I'll have my arm around you and you will be there with me. And it's such a perfect picture of how radical the grace of God is, how, how over the top his kindness is, how unexpected his mercies are, and, how incredibly blessed we are to be recipients of that same grace. There's just no one like Jesus and and there's no message more beautiful than the gospel. Would you write this down? We're saved completely and absolutely by grace. We're saved completely and absolutely by grace. And your salvation and mine is no less radical than that thieves was. Now at this point I'm gonna ask you to turn backwards in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45. And it says this in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. That would be from about noon until 3 p.m. And you may recall that the crucifixion began at 9 a.m. And Luke's gospel actually says the darkness was over all the earth. Some say it was like an eclipse, but because we know that the Jews operated on a lunar calendar and Passover always fell on a full moon, we know that scientifically a solar eclipse would have been impossible. This was 100% a supernatural event. Throughout the scriptures, darkness is a mark of judgment. 
And so I think we can reasonably assume that this darkness was an indicator that in the spiritual realm, Jesus was experiencing the Father's wrath against the sins of the world, which he had taken upon himself. I think we can reasonably assume that that divine judgment of the Father began at this point when the whole world turned dark. Jesus will spend a total of six hours on the cross and halfway through that time, three hours into it, this darkness begins. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is pitch black as he who knew no sin became sin and the father who cannot even look upon sin had to turn his back on his only begotten son for the first time in eternity, leaving Jesus completely alone, completely forsaken to bear the full weight of our sin, the full punishment for our sin completely alone. And Jesus doesn't say father like he does every other time in the Gospels. Instead he cries, my God, my God. Why? Because he couldn't call him Father in that moment. Because he was in our place at that moment. The sinner separated from God. You see, this, this is what Jesus is dreading when he sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' disciples are not stronger than the Son of God himself. History tells us that the disciples go to their martyrdom singing. Jesus is in anguish, sweating drops of blood in the garden before he goes to his death, asking the Father if there's any other way for this not to happen, that it would be done so. It's not the physical death that Jesus fears in that moment. It's this time here where he is separated from his father for the first time in eternity, completely alone and completely forsaken in every level to absorb the full wrath of God against sin. That's what he was dreading in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as I mentioned last week, while we're able to observe the physical suffering Jesus endured, from his scourging and crucifixion. We could see that, we could perceive that on the physical plane. The truth is we have no idea what happened on the spiritual plane, in the spiritual realm. There are lots of people who speculate and I'm not gonna get into what all those different speculations are but, but here's just something to understand. Whatever Jesus went through, hell exists in a, a literal place but also it's a spiritual dimension. And so whatever Jesus went through on the physical and on the spiritual level, it was enough to balance the scale for every person's eternity in hell for crimes they committed against God. Whatever Jesus went through on the spiritual level and the physical level, it, it, it balanced it out. It wasn't like the father said, I'll, I'll give you a really sweet deal and only charge you pennies on the dollar. Like he's a perfectly just God and it balanced out and, and I don't know what that looks like in the spiritual world. We only will know when we arrive in heaven and it's one of the reasons we're gonna so passionately glorify Jesus forever in eternity is because we'll understand for the first time all he went through. We can't know on this side, but it was enough to balance it out. And so we can know 
confidently that it was terrible and was more horrific than anything anyone has ever been through on any level, ever. And as the world goes dark and as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is taking on that enough to balance out every bit of punishment, every eternity in hell for every single sinner, including you and I. This is a staggering, staggering thought. In Revelation 13:8, Jesus is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now that could mean it was planned before the foundation of the world, or it could be a statement regarding time that speaks to the suffering Jesus went through in dimensions and on levels outside of time that we, we just cannot possibly comprehend. Write this down. Jesus faced the wrath of God against our sin completely alone. Completely alone. In crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's an incredible thing. Jesus is directly quoting the opening verse of Psalm 22, drawing the attention of everyone who was there at that moment and also everyone who would read the Gospels in the future like you and I to Psalm 22. And we'll look into that more in a little bit because what you'll discover is that Jesus was saying from the cross, that Psalm is about me. And when you study Psalm 22, you'll be blown away by what you discover. We'll do that, as I said, in just a little bit. Verse 47, some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. So he said, Ali, Ali, the first few letters of Elijah's name, and some people just make that out and say, oh, he's calling for the spirit of Elijah to come and save him. John's gospel tells us that, it's on your outlines, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, underline that on your outlines, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Verse 48, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed, a branch of hyssop, John tells us, and offered it to him to drink. This is not the same narcotic drink, the one mixed with myrrh that Jesus had turned down earlier that we read about last week. This was cheap, sour wine which was given to prolong life and increase the torture by staving off dehydration a little longer. And even this was prophesied in Psalm 69, 21. It's on your outlines where we read, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 69 is also a messianic psalm. And while we don't have time to stop and go through it, I encourage you to spend some time studying it this week and just seeing what prophetic points and details you can pick up on it. It says a lot about what Jesus went through in his death, but also during his life. Verse 49, the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and then underline this phrase, and yielded up his spirit, yielded up his spirit. John tells us, it's on your outline, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, underline it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, underline he gave up his spirit. This is not a final whimper before death. This is a shout of victory. The wording in the original language for it is finished is most like our English phrase, mission accomplished. 
but there's a secondary meaning that's equally significant and profound. In the Greek phrase that's used there is the word tetelestai, which literally means paid in full. At this time in the world, if you had a debt you couldn't pay, you'd be thrown into jail. And it could be a debt you owe to person or a debt you owe society. And that debt could take the form of money, time, or even torture. And this would be the great dilemma. How do you pay back a debt when you're in prison? The jailer would keep track of how much of your debt you still owed. And if you escaped, the jailer would inherit the responsibility of repaying your debt. When your debt was paid off, you would receive a document with the word tetelestai, paid in full, stamped on it to prove you had paid your debt. This would protect you against double jeopardy, against the person coming back and saying, you still owe me that money. You'd be able to hold that up and say, no, dude, tetelestai, it's been paid in full. What Jesus did on the cross was show up at our prison where we had a debt we could never pay and he assumed full responsibility for everything we owed, everything. And he let us go free. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and so Jesus paid those wages, that debt for us by laying down his life. And as Christians, we don't claim to be better than other people, but we do claim to be forgiven because Jesus has freed us from the debt of sin. Make a note of this, it is finished means paid in full, paid in full, to telestai in Greek or mission accomplished, paid in full. Luke's gospel adds the detail that just before his final breath, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In saying that, Jesus quotes from Psalm 31, verse five, another messianic psalm I encourage you to explore. And I hope you're picking up on this. When Jesus quotes from the cross, from Psalm 22, Psalm 31, and Psalm 69, he is intentionally drawing our attention to those places in scripture. And when Jesus does that, it's always worth following the clue to see what you might discover and find. And I encourage you to do that in your own studies this week. What Jesus is doing here is fulfilling what he said all the way back in John 10, earlier in his ministry. Do you remember when Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Jesus' death was a voluntary act, and I don't just mean that he chose to go through all that on the cross. I mean, it was voluntary from his arrest to the timing of his final breath. He was in control of all of it. He was and is God. And the truth is you can't kill God. Even in his human form, on an ontological level, Jesus is still also God. And had he not chosen to give up his spirit, to embrace death, he could have hung on that cross forever. Even in that state, he was the one fully in control. That's why he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he chooses that moment. He chooses the moment when the judgment is finished. And that's why it doesn't take him days to die. The judgment is finished, it is complete. He says, job done, and he chooses the moment of his final breath. Even the fact that Jesus shouted, it is finished, proved that he still had strength in him before he took his final breath. And he was the one who chose the moment to give up his spirit. So write this down. Jesus died confidently, willingly, 
and victoriously. He died confidently, willingly, and victoriously. And because he did, while we may not always die willingly, we can die confidently and victoriously. At this point, this is the last part I'm gonna do. I couldn't mention all this without asking you to turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and if you're panicking like where's the book of Psalms, just open your Bible roughly in the middle and you'll be close to the book of Psalms. Psalm 22, and I just wanted to give a quick read through this, not an exhaustive study because it's, it's incredible and I hope to provoke you into studying this more for yourself this week. As we said, it was written by David 900 years before Jesus went to the cross more than 400 years before crucifixion's even invented. It's written from the perspective of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. It puts you in the place of Jesus and helps you to understand what he was going through, what he was thinking, what was happening to him. And it says this, Psalm 22 opens with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very words spoken by Jesus on the cross when the Father forsook him completely and left him alone to be judged for our sin. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season and am not silent, but, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers, that's the Old Testament saints, trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man. Underline that word, worm. I need to pause for a second and make you aware of something. The Hebrew word used there for the word worm is the word tola, T-O-L-A-H, which also means scarlet. In fact, in the Bible, that word is translated over 38 times as the word crimson. And the reason is because scarlet dye, used to dye fabric and things like that, was made from a particular worm, the Sermes vermilio, which you know, we're all familiar. And the Sermes vermilio, what it does is it climbs a tree and it pierces the thin bark of twigs to suck out the sap. And then it turns that sap into like a waxy scale that it uses to protect its soft body. And the red dye can be found in this waxy scale when it's crushed up. When reproducing, the female Sermes vermilio climbs a tree, usually a home oak, where it lays its eggs and it waits. The larvae hatch and then feed on the body of the worm, the mother, killing it as it gives life. This event leaves a crimson spot, a stain on the branch, and that spot dries out over a period of three days when it turns from red into white. The whole process bearing this obvious parallel to what Jesus did for us on the cross. In Isaiah 1.18, it says this, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Back to Psalm 22, Jesus speaking from the cross. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The very words that are hurled at Jesus by those who mock him. 
But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. It's most likely a reference to demons. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's just a piece of broken pottery. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. That's a a vivid description of how dehydrated Jesus is when he cries out, I thirst. His tongue is just sticking to the side of his mouth. For dogs, that's a Jewish reference to Gentiles, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Now you gotta underline this because this is staggering. They pierced my hands and my feet. That is so specific. 900 years before Jesus is crucified, 400 years before crucifixion is even invented, Psalm 22 prophesies a death for Messiah in which his hands and feet are pierced and he is left being hung there to be mocked by other people. That that kind of precision, let me just be blunt, that kind of precision is impossible when it comes to predicting the future unless it comes from a source that exists outside of time and has full knowledge of the future. There's just no other explanation for it. It's so specific. Speaking of specific, it next says, I can count all my bones. Even though Jesus would be crucified, not a single one of his bones would be broken. That's what was prophesied, that's what happened. And you'll recall some of you from the story of his crucifixion, we'll read about it next time. When the soldier comes by to break the legs of the men on the cross to hasten their death, he tests to see if they're still alive by poking them with a spear and he pierces the side of Jesus. Blood and water come out, revealing that Jesus has already died. And so he doesn't break Jesus' legs, keeping this prophecy intact. Then it says, they look and stare at me. And here's that verse we read about. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Again, just a reference to the Roman Gentiles. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Probably references again to demons. And then here at this point in Psalm 22, things, things just turn spectacularly. And I, and I love this because this psalm now just erupts into something epically glorious. It, it's hard for me to read it out loud. And I believe that this is the moment in this psalm, this is the moment describing what happens when Jesus cries out, it is finished, to Telestai. He says, you have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren, those who would be saved because of the cross. In the midst of the assembly, that's speaking of heaven, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. 
But when he cried out to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousnesses to a people who will be born. That's you and I. That he has done this. You see, the cross was a triumph, not a tragedy. And Jesus was in control of every bit of it. From the moment of his arrest to the timing of his final breath. And all I'm going to say in conclusion is don't take your salvation lightly. Don't don't take it lightly. Whatever Jesus went through on the physical and spiritual level, it was enough to balance out the punishment that should have gone to every person for every sin ever committed, every eternity in hell. What Jesus went through balanced that out. Don't take your salvation lightly. It was the costliest item ever purchased. Live for Jesus with everything you have. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, what can we say but thank you for what you went through? Thank you for going to the cross Thank you for going willingly. Thank you for going confidently and thank you for going victoriously. Thank you for laying down your life of your own choosing. And thank you that you took our sin. You took the wrath and the punishment and the judgment that we deserved. You had done nothing wrong. But you paid the price that needed to be paid to balance that out and to cancel our debts. Thank you for loving us at at a cost that we will never understand until we arrive in your presence. Help us to live every day and, and every moment out of gratitude for what you've done for us. Not trying to earn what we could never earn but driven by gratitude for what you've done for us. May we hold nothing back from you in any area of our life. May you have every part of us. And we just ask today and in these 21 days of prayer that if if there's any change, if there's any direction you want to take us in, anywhere you want us to go, anything you want us to do, that you'll reveal it clearly that we might obey and do and live exactly the way you want us to. We're so thankful, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.